This is a Bartificer production. Hi folks, welcome to episode 119 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host Bart Busatz and this is the show for August 2023. We have another solo show this month and I wasn't actually sure what I was going to talk about and then I ended up listening to a podcast that made me rethink my thoughts on a very specific aspect of AI which is something myself and Antonio talked about quite a bit some time ago. Um, I will pop links into the show notes for those previous episodes. So I basically want to spend this episode talking about one aspect of AI's intersection with photography, which is how the AI gets trained. So there's going to be way more episodes in the future where I, you know, dive into all sorts of different complex questions about what we can, should, shouldn't do with AIs once they are trained. But today I want to focus on the question of the basically the various questions that training itself raises. So, really, I've come to realise that when it comes to my initial take, my first thought on the legalities and the ethics of training AI, I'm pretty sure I was at least half wrong. So I definitely expressed a lot of support for Adobe's approach uh, when talking to Antonio, uh, where Adobe, in their Firefly product, they're training their AI purely on their own stock image library. And that is still a good product, and I I stand by being in favor of that approach because one of the effects from that approach is going to be that if you train the model on high-quality curated data sets, you're going to get good quality stuff out the other side. If I was a shareholder, I'd also like the fact that it neatly sidesteps a whole bunch of controversies. But actually... I don't think you need to do it that way. So while I was very positive about the Adobe approach last time, what I was not positive about was the other approach, which is what AIs like DALI have taken, where they train themselves basically on the internet. They hoovered up the internet and used that as their training set. And I was very critical of that because I sort of assumed it was a copyright violation and I assumed it was basically theft. And I now don't think that anymore. I now have changed my mind really about 180 degrees. So I want to start by giving credit to a podcast episode. So very, very rarely does the Floss Weekly podcast intersect with photography because it's a show about free Libra and open source software. That's what Floss stands for from the Twit Network. And to be honest, I consider it a bit of a hit and miss show. It's on my list of shows that every week I have a look at the guests and I decide whether or not to listen to it. And I'd say I listen to it about half the time. But recently, the show caught my eye because the guest was a lawyer called Davy, sorry, Damien Real, and he kind of caught my attention a while back by using a computer algorithm to generate all possible musical melodies on our various scales up to 12 notes. 
and then putting them into a work and then copywriting that work and then offering that work into the, sorry, not copywriting the work, releasing the work as public domain, thereby making it extremely, in theory anyway, providing cover for all these silly lawsuits where people are suing each other over reusing a melody because the simple fact is there are very, very few possible melodies. So that's not an appropriate way to sue people about music. Anyway, again, not related to photography. But what is related to photography is that the conversation moved on from the fun, you know, technique, the novel legal technique of basically copywriting all possible melodies to a discussion on AI and lots of different aspects of AI and not a lot of it directly related to photography. But one part that was, was the question of how AIs get trained and how the laws and the way you should think about it is really very different to a lot of people's first take. And I was expecting to disagree strongly with Damien, and I didn't. The more I listened to his explanation, the more I was like, oh, oh no, actually, yeah, okay, I'm with you there. I don't know if you'll agree with me, and I may not do a particularly good job of explaining the ideas that he put into my head. So the link is in the show notes to the original podcast, and a lot of it's about computer science stuff, not a lot of it about photography, but the AI stuff is relevant. Anyway, I'm going to sort of, inspired by this podcast, I rethought my thoughts, and I want to take you on a little journey through how I'm thinking about it now. I'm going to start on my home turf of the computer science of it all. So when you train an AI model, what are you actually doing? What you're doing is you're tweaking the values of an in a big grid of numbers. There's nothing more going on. It's just there's this grid of numbers that represent the weights of each connection in a neural network. And the job of training is to tweak those numbers until the model gets quote unquote better. And your definition of better is basically up to you. So you put an awful lot of effort into training the model. And then once the model is trained, you take those numbers, you load them into a neural net, be that, you know, the bionic whatever neural engine inside your Apple device or whatever the Android equivalent is. And then you shove some sort of question in one side of the neural network and some sort of answer will fall out of the other side of the neural network. So the hard work is in training it. But in the job of training it, what you're doing is you're tweaking that grid of numbers. So when you start off, at the start of your training, your model knows literally nothing, right? What you have is a grid of random numbers. And that means that whatever it is you're trying to teach your neural network to do, it's really, really bad at it, right? Um, But when you're finished training your neural network, no matter how long you spend doing it, no matter how many millions of hours of computer time you throw at it, no matter how many millions of inputs you give to it, the end size of the neural network is identical to the starting size. You start off with a finite grid of random numbers and you end up with the same size grid with the same content, a bunch of numbers. They're just different numbers. Instead of being random numbers, they're now numbers that allow the neural network to do whatever it is you thought it should do. So whatever your definition of good is, it should be better at it. So it doesn't get any bigger. So what's actually being stored? When you're training an AI model, AI model what, is actually, what is the model actually storing? Now that's actually quite a deep philosophical question. But we can look at it the other way around and say, what's it not storing? 
it's very, very obviously not storing the content you're training it on, right? If the words and the images you fed into an AI model while training it were actually being stored in the model, then the model would grow and grow and grow. And so if you train the model on even 1% of the internet, you basically wouldn't be able to store it anymore because you can't store 1% of the internet. You kind of need the internet to do that. So it is really obvious that a neural network is not actually storing the training data. So if you train a neural network on all of the works of Shakespeare, it hasn't stored the works of Shakespeare. If you train a neural network on every single photo on Flickr, it hasn't stored every photo on Flickr because it is exactly the same size when you finish as when you started. So what is being stored? Like I say, a lot of philosophy here. I think the best Englishy word to fit what's going on here is ideas. A model starts off with nonsense ideas. And the more you train it, the more its ideas begin to approximate an average of the ideas expressed in the training data. Or, I'm going to carefully choose my words here, in the original works that make up the training data. Why am I choosing my words? I'm being all legalistic here. Indeed I am, because I want to shift over to copyright. So, in modern, you know, in our industrialized democracies, we basically all have the same copyright law. We basically stole it from the US. So I'm just going to focus on US copyright law here as sort of to illustrate my points, but do bear in mind it's basically the same across what we shall probably inappropriately call the Western world. And of course, the companies doing this AI stuff are mostly headquartered in the United States anyway, so it's not a bad one to pick. So what was copyright designed to do? If I may channel Alison Sheridan from the Nasilicast podcast, what's the problem to be solved? So copyright is about protecting creative works, where creative works are specific expressions of ideas. Key point here is that a copyright protects an expression of an idea. Copyright absolutely positively does not protect ideas, right? You can protect a subset of ideas using patents and there are other forms of intellectual property that apply to ideas. But copyright is not about ideas. It's about a specific expression of an idea. Now, copyright is actually a very powerful legal construct because it's automatic. If you produce a creative work, you hold the copyright by default. You need take no action. You don't have to do anything. The copyright on that creative work is yours. You can take an action to waive or transfer the right you get by default. But if you do nothing, you have copyright protection. To swings to every roundabout, roundabouts to every swing, whatever way you want to put it. To counterbalance the great power of copyright law, it also has limitations. So your automatic protections you get in exchange for others having the right to make fair use of your work. And this reminds me an awful lot of uh, patent law. Uh, so in patent law, you share your invention with the world and anyone can then use it in future but in exchange for explaining how it works you get 
legally protected exclusivity for a couple of years at the start, which allows you to recoup your investments and make some profit before the floodgates open and everyone gets to use your invention. So that's a swing and roundabout to a patent, right? The, on the one hand, you get legally protected exclusivity. On the other hand, in exchange for that, you have to give it to everyone afterwards. On the one hand, you get automatic copyright protection. On the other hand, you give fair use of it to everyone. Swings, roundabouts. Now we come back again. I really want to stress this point. You can only copyright specific expressions of ideas not the ideas themselves, and if you want to get all legalistic about it, the legal jargon for this very, very, very important concept is the idea-expression dichotomy. The other thing, of course, is fair use. So there are actually lots of different types of fair use, and fair use gets squishy around the edges because it involves sort of legal standards, which is basically a way of saying, dear judge, think about it like this, as opposed to saying, here is the exact edge, because a lot of this stuff is very fuzzy around the edges. So a lot of the stuff needs to be litigated case by case. But there are guiding principles, and they actually are quite sensible. So if you don't look too closely, fair use is an actually difficult concept, bearing in mind that in specific cases, it can get specifically a bit difficult. But the big picture is actually sensible, simple-ish. Um, uh, so I think we all know that fair use lets us do things like include a piece of a copyrighted work in a new work, as long as you're adding some creativity. So this is called a derivative work. So if you're reviewing a movie, you are going, or a book, it's probably an even better example. If you're reviewing a book, you're going to include pieces of the book in your review. Well, the book is copyrighted. You've put a piece of the book in your review. Isn't that a breach of copyright? Well, no, because it's a fair use of the book because you're you're using it to build a derivative work. You're adding your own creativity. If you're saying nice things, then it's very unlikely to ever come up as an issue because the author won't be cranky. But if you're taking a, you know, a pretty scathing review, then the author could get cranky. But again, you are protected by fair use. Similarly, if a book is making some sort of argument that you disagree with vehemently, you can quote the heck out of it within reason, as long as you're being creative and creating something new. So you can do a rebuttal. You can also take pieces of lots and lots and lots of copyrighted works and build some sort of a broad overview kind of an article, again, perfectly legal. And fair use even extends to something which the original author may be excruciatingly cranky about, which is satire. So, you know, there's a lot of derivative works are a big thing. Another big thing in fair use is transformative works. This is where you take a copyrighted something or other and you make a whole different thing. It has to be, has to be different. That takes as its input the copyrighted work but produces something completely different. And that is also allowed as part of fair use. So to give you an example of the kind of thing that is transformative, you could ingest every book in the world, which would be lots of people's copyright, and you can build up an index which will map the line number, the page number, and the ISBN of every time the word poop is used in English literature. Now, the reason that's fair use is because what you're building is completely transformative. You start off with books and you end up with an index. That is a total transformation, no copyright problem. 
And I didn't really, I mean, okay, the poop bit I pulled out, you know, the poop bit I made up. But the concept I didn't make up, it's actually, we've done this. This has been to court. In fact, something way more controversial than simply a searchable index has been to court. So there's a very useful service called Google Scholar, which allows you to search digitally old books that predate the digital era. And Google achieved this useful thing, particularly for research, for for scholars, by scanning every book, saving those scans into their cloud, doing optical character recognition, OCR, to translate the pictures into words, building a searchable index of all of those words, and then saving, well, basically they have scans of the images. So not only can you search for every time a phrase shows up in all of these printed books, the search results will actually show you the lines before and after your matches. So Google are not just letting you search everything. They're also letting you see parts of the copyrighted work. Now, parts are often fair use, but this is a transformation and a more traditional derivative work. And so you can see how this would end up in court because the authors got very cranky about this and they sued Google and it went to court and it went to appeal. And at the end of the day, the courts decided in favor of Google. And I don't, I'm not going to read an entire legal judgment, but I am going to quote you the the summary sentence of the outcome of the case. Because basically, yes, it is absolutely fair use. And this is what the judge said. Google's unauthorized digitizing of copyright protected works, creation of a search functionality and display of snippets from those works are non-infringing fair uses. The purpose of the copyright is highly transformative. The public display of text is limited and the revelations do not provide a significant market substitute for the protected aspects of the originals. In other words, Google transformed the heck out of the books. So it's fine. That is a fair use. Now let's circle back to the question of AI training. So from a copyright point of view, it seems pretty obvious to me that you can train your AI on other people's copyrighted works without infringing copyright because the AI, the AI model doesn't even contain a copy of the originals in the same way that Google Scholar does. It, the only thing that's going on here is that you get averaged out representations of the ideas stored in the neural net in the form of those weights, right? The original text and images that get sucked into the AI or training on other people's copyrighted works gets completely transformed into nothing more than a collection of weights. So that is utterly transformative. So that does indeed strike non-lawyer me as very clearly not a copyright problem. That is fair use. So the notion that it's clearly illegal for OpenAI to suck in people's copyrighted works doesn't hold any water for me anymore. It's like, oh. Now, the fact that a lawyer told me this does help a lot. Um, But so anyway, I don't think that legal argument actually stacks up. But of course, a good law isn't just about whether or not it's legal. It's whether or not it's like, you know, okay, whether it's ethical, just, whatever word you'd like to use. So how about we circle back to that? So AI models don't contain copies of expressed ideas. They just contain their own representation of averaged out ideas. And they do that by transforming the text or images 
so to me it's it's there's no theft here right there's nothing being taken um but if we can sort of sort of put ourselves into the shoes of an author who's horrified by the notion of a poop index i'm going to circle back to my silly poop index example and so you're an author you've written a book you're very against the idea of a poop index and you learn that your work is listed in the index which is a wee bit embarrassing because you're against the whole idea so you're probably going what gave you the right to take my copyrighted work and include it in your index that's very strongly analogous to the sentiment of a photographer demanding to know what gives OpenAI AI the right to train, to train Dolly on my pictures. And to me, this boils down to the simple quid pro quo at the heart of copyright. You get a heck of a lot of copyright protections from copyright law, and in exchange for those protections, you get fair use of your work by others. That's the trade. Other people get to use your stuff under fair use, you get protections of your stuff under copyright. So when I look at AI training now, I'm basically thinking, no, definitely no legal issues here that I see in terms of copyright. And also, I don't have a problem with you averaging my ideas into your mix. Because in exchange for that, I have copyright protection. So basically, go ahead, hoover up my photos. I'm grand with that. Again, I want to emphasize that I'm being very narrow here. I'm not saying, yeah, that's it. All of AI is fine. No problems with AI. No, nothing to worry about here. Lots of things to worry about. More on that later. But even if we keep our focus really tightly honed into AI training, even if we accept that it's not a copyright problem, it's not a theft problem, we're still not out of the legal and ethical woods here. Because... There are actually problems with how you get those images to train on. So imagine you magically had all of these photos, then it would be fine to ingest them. But you don't magically have all of these photos. You have to go fetch them, which means you have to somehow hoover up or crawl vast chunks of the web. And this is where things get potentially dangerous because the act of hoovering lots and lots of images off of the web consumes bandwidth. Bandwidth costs money. If I am running a large internet site like Flickr, I am paying an absolute fortune for my bandwidth and for some other for-profit company to come along and to give me a gigantic bandwidth bill so that they can profit off the images I'm hosting, that seems morally ethically gray and it might also be legally gray now if i'm a photographer hosting my own website and i happen to have a lot of stuff up there and it all gets sucked up i could end up getting hit with the bill which just seems deeply unfair to me as well so the notion that someone else could generate a bill for the creator and then get all the profit that's a problem ethically morally that's theft but also legally, there's a problem here because there are not every country is quite the same here. But one of the major companies in play here is the United States, and in the United States, there's literally a law against that. It's called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. With my computer scientist hat on, I can tell you that that is a an anachronism of a law. It's been around since the early days of computers before we got any understanding of what they would do. It was badly written from day one. It has more problems than you can shake a stick at. 
and I'm not going to go into them here because it's a photography podcast, but in the case of where the CFAA intersects with the photography, it is actually sensible. So under the CFAA, it is illegal to break a website's terms of service. So if a large image hoster like Flickr or Getty or Twitter, sorry, X, yeah, Twitter, um, if they have a terms of service that say, you can't scrape our website, we're making our website available for the purposes of human beings enjoying this media. And if you're not a human being enjoying this media, then that's not what this website is for. That's against our terms of service. That is legally enforceable in the United States under the CFAA. So if you go in and scrape all of the websites in breach of the toss, you are in legal trouble and you're generating bandwidth bills for other people, which means that you're just being a naughty so-and-so in my opinion. So while it's fine for you to ingest the images if you've managed to get your hands on them in an appropriate way, it's not fine to just go and scrape the whole internet and generate vast bandwidth bills for everyone left, right and centre. So they actually still have some stuff to deal with here. Now, if we expand our focus beyond just training AIs, we have, oh, we in for a doozy of a whole bunch of different issues, right? So let us imagine that we have not generated vast amounts of bandwidth bills for people we have found fair ways of getting a training set ingesting that training set training our ai we now have an extremely powerful very generic and very flexible tool and we want to make that tool available in some sort of a way to offer some sort of a service to make some profit and that's ultimately what's going on here these companies are making are using ai to create services that people find useful enough to pay for. That's that's the aim here, right? It's, it's about building a service. So it's a very generic tool, very powerful, and very open to abuse. Like with every technology, pretty darn obvious that there are going to have to be safeguards. We are going to need legal safeguards, organizational safeguards, and maybe we can get away with technological safeguards, which are way easier to do. So it will be, you know, whatever can be done by technology is actually very good for people fighting AI services, if you can do that. But anyway, you need your structures in place, you need your legal frameworks in place, and your technology in place, because you absolutely positively are going to need to put protections of all sorts in place. And of course, the edge cases are going to be really interesting. So uh, lots and lots of controversy to come. Now, one thing, as I say, I'm pretty much done with the bulk of what I want to talk about today. But before before we finish off, I do just want to put a bit more context around this. right? So I have been looking very, 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 very much focused in on the legalities of training. But, you know, we know that when the, you have this trained AI, all this whole, you know, worms, can of worms has just been opened up here. And there's a lot of people saying that we need completely new laws to handle AI. And we're probably going to need some new, at the very least, regulations on this stuff. But do bear in mind that we already have a heckin' lot of laws already in place today that completely, totally and utterly apply to AI. Because the simple fact is that if something is illegal, it's illegal. It doesn't matter how you do it. You can't defraud people legally, whether you're using an AI, whether you're using, you know, SMS, whether you're using 
post a letter, whether you're knocking on someone's front door and talking to them, it doesn't matter how. You you can't defraud people legally. There are literally laws against fraud. You can't steal things from people. Counterfeiting is illegal. Whether you counterfeit by paying someone in a sweatshop in China or whether you counterfeit by making an AI create an entirely fake novel or whatever. Counterfeiting is counterfeiting. It is illegal. Right? We, as human beings, have a whole bunch of legally protected rights. So whether those rights are violated through technology or through people being dicks or through AI doesn't matter. The rights are still violated, so we still have legal recourse. We have a right to our good name. We have a right to our likeness, which is, you know, why are the actors negotiating over fair payment for their likeness? They're negotiating for fair payment over use of their likeness by AI because they actually have a right over their likeness. Now, the movie studios would like them to surrender that right for a pittance, but the only reason the movie studios are asking is because actually they do have those rights and AI hasn't vanished the rights away. The movie studios want the actors to vanish them away for them, which is moral and immoral, blah, 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 right? Anyway, I didn't even plan to go there, but anyway. So we have legal protection for access. There's also all sorts of intellectual property protections because our industrialized democracies depend very heavily on intellectual property, which is a very swings and roundabouts sort of a thing. But I'm not going into business ethics here. The point is we have a lot of laws protecting all sorts of intellectual property, including stuff like trademarks and stuff. So telling an AI, please make me a an image in the style of another person who's selling their work. Well, we're into interesting things here because that person has rights over their name. That person has rights over their trademarks and stuff. So you actually can't pass off the AI's work as someone else's work. There's grey areas there too about whether or not in the style of how much heavy lifting is that phrase doing. That's lots of stuff to be litigated there. But stuff like happened recently on Amazon where people were creating, were using AI to write pretty poor quality auto-generated novels and then passing them off as being the actual work of another author. That's not an edge case. That's plain old illegal. That is counterfeit. That is a breach of the author's trademarks. It's a. It's just, you know, so many ways you can sue over that. So no wonder Amazon took them all down. That's just plain old illegal. Um, and to finish up circling back to photography here, there's another anecdote that's been getting, not an anecdote, no, it's not an anecdote, it's a thing that happens, um, a sort of a notorious example, shall we say, of why AI, you know, basically what goes wrong when AI, generative AI in particular, doesn't have sufficient um, safety nets, basically doesn't have sufficient protections in place. So, if you ask Dolly to generate some types of images, sometimes you end up with something that looks shockingly like a Getty Images logo popped into the generated image. Now, that logo is literally a trademark. So there is very obviously a guardrail missing here. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding around this example because people who don't understand how AI works assume that the fact that something that looks like a Getty logo is appearing in some of the generated images proves that the AIs are storing all of Getty's images. And they're sort of copying and pasting bits of photos to make the output. 
but that's not what's going on, right? We know that's not what's going on because we know that the weights are all that's going on here. Learning from Getty hasn't added all of that Getty image into the Getty image into the into the model. We know that. What has happened here then? Well, clearly Getty has learned the idea that say images of footballers contain circular things, people in shorts, green backgrounds, and because Getty are just so everywhere, something in the shape of a Getty logo. Now, we don't have a copyright problem here, because the AI has learned the idea of Getty, not copied the Getty logo. The problem is, the moment something that looks like a Getty logo is popped into the output, you are now in breach of Getty's trademark. Because what you're actually doing here is you're counterfeiting. So Getty's logo is a trademark which tells customers, consumers, sorry, that what you have here is a part of Getty's high-quality curated catalogue of imagery. It's not. It's a bunch of AI-generated stuff. It is absolutely, positively not a Getty image. Breach of trademark. So, clearly, Dolly is missing a safeguard. Generative AIs need to not breach everyone's trademarks. Now, there's an interesting irony here that by the very nature of a trademark, this actually isn't a difficult edge case at all. Because in order to get a trademark, you have to register a trademark. In order to register a trademark, you literally have to send a copy of the thing you're trademarking to the Patent and Trademark Office. And then they make it available in a database to everyone in the world so that you know what is it isn't trademarked. So actually, you can use AI to protect your AI from abusing people's trademarks. What you need is a much simpler type of AI called a classifier, which is to pattern matches. So you take the output of the generative AI, before you give it to the to the customer, you run it through a classifier that goes and looks for, does this yoke contain any of these trademarks I've, in, I've you know, been given by the patent trademark offices around the world? Yes, it does. Oh, either we send it back into the AI to remove that yoke, or we just block the image and say, sorry, try again. It doesn't matter what we do. The point is you have a filter that a classifier can easily add. So this is a legal protection that actually the AI companies could easily deal with. Of course, there are way, way, way more abuses that are possible that are going to be way more difficult to deal with. But again, in a lot of cases, we already have the laws and we just need to make sure, just, (laughs) wrong word to use here, it will be a deep problem for our time to make, to provide appropriate protections around these AIs. So plenty more to think about, argue about, discuss, legislate, you know, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of more to go here on the AI story. But at least I don't, I don't feel I need to worry about the training side of it anymore. I've got that much figured out. No, which is all the rest I need to figure out. Basically, I'm happy for AI companies to learn from my photos as long as they don't generate a giant big bandwidth bill for me. I am going to draw a line under there, folks. Um, A written form of these same thoughts, which is a little bit better put together than me, sort of half half kind of sort of reading now, which is what I've been doing here, is available over on the podcast website, let's-talk.ie. 
while you go over there, you'll notice a section in the sidebar called support the show. I want to give a big thank you to everyone who has ever supported the show in any way, shape, size or form. This is a 100% listener supported podcast. It exists only because you guys rock. So thank you. In the past, I was using Patreon on a per episode basis, and I had to tell you all that what if you want to give me a certain amount from one, you divide by two, yada, 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 all very confusing. I had now switched to simulated monthly billing on Patreon because reasons. Um, so from now, the, the new normal is that I will make exactly one Patreon post each month, which is going to be a listing of all of my creations across all of my different podcasts. And so if you want to pledge me $2 a month, pledge $2. If you want to pledge me $5 a month, pledge $5, euros, whatever, right? So it's all got way simpler. Uh, And the great thing with the Patreon is it's a reliable source of income that I use to pay the bills. My intention here isn't to turn giant big profits. My intention here is have the podcasting be self-sustaining. We were very, we were basically on that uh, before I changed to this monthly cycle. Um, a heck of a lot of you have updated your pledges by approximately doubling them. And you guys, you guys are amazing. Thank you so much. Um, initially, in the first month I did the change, unsurprisingly, I dropped to half my revenue that month. And we're back up to, I would say, three quarters of where we used to be, at least, probably a little bit more by now. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has updated their pledges. I really do appreciate it. There is also a PayPal button, uh, which has also been greatly improved. Um, so I've set up a new uh, PayPal donation uh, portally pagey thing where there's now a drop down where you can actually say what it is you're trying to support which helps me to figure out what people think is worth support and what isn't so one of the things in the drop down is these podcasts there's other stuff there's other things to drop down for other things i do so when you make a donation it can be way more specific than it used to be which also is useful and the idea is that the patreon covers the monthly bills and the paypal covers one-off expenses like software hardware those kind of bits and bobs so Again, thank you to everyone who has ever pressed the PayPal button. That is very useful. The computer, uh, the mic I'm talking into, the boom, I'm holding up the mic, the computer that the mic is connected to, the screen that I'm looking at the computer on, all of it, all of it, all of it is from, no, it's not all from, that's not true. Uh, Much of it is from the support of the various podcasts, and I really do appreciate it. Um, No, no one has hit the PayPal button with enough money to cover a Mac studio. (laughs) Uh, no, that doesn't happen. Anyway, sorry. As I talk at I've been your host, Bart Bouchots. You can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy snapping.